0: You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, hi, everyone. <laughs> you champions? Good afternoon. Armageddon weather?
0: It is indeed Armageddon weather. Yes, very sorry. So thank you so much for coming out in this Armageddon weather, which has hardly stuck to you at all, I must say. <coughs> OK, she's just um, belied what I just said. <laughs> but that's fine. Shes suffer she... for my art. So. Yes, always. <laughs> Welcome to Stanton Library and the Writers at Stanton program held in conjunction with the Constant Reader Bookshop and Crow's Nest. My name is Philippa Dufleu and I work at Stanton Library. I would like to acknowledge that this event is being held on the traditional lands of the gamma people, and I wish to pay our respects to elders and traditional owners, both past and present. Our author today is Holly Ringland, who will talk about her novel The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding. Holly will be in conversation with her publisher, Catherine Milne from HarperCollins. Holly is a writer, storyteller and television presenter. Her best-selling debut novel, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, won the Australian Book Industry Award General Fiction Book of the Year in 2019. It has been published in 30 territories and is being adapted into a seven-part TV series for global streaming on Amazon Prime (laughs) starring Sigourney Weaver.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, guys. Thank you. I can't start crying before Philip has even stopped speaking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Holly co-hosted the eight-part ABC TV series Back to Nature with... Aaron Pedersen, which aired to critical acclaim last year. Holly's new novel, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, is an epic journey through love, love, courage, and family connections. It is a tribute to the places that hold our memories. It explores the power of wearing your heart on your skin and the ability to transform through feeling both grief and joy. Please join with me in turning your mobiles to silent and welcoming Holly Ringland.
2: Um, I I feel like this rain has just been a total icebreaker. I feel like (laughs) we should just be like having cups of tea and a bit of a chat. I I understand that uh, Holly and I are going to have a bit of a chat for about half an hour and then I think you get a chance to ask questions. But look, we could roll anyway. (laughs) So if there is a question that comes up during the conversation, just throw up your hands and we will just roll with it. uh, Look, I I am Catherine Milne, I'm the Head of Fiction at HarperCollins and I published The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart and uh, this book as well and they are um, among the two great joys of... (laughs) (laughs) All right, you couldn't hear any of that. Oh, you could, okay. Do you need me... Oh, Is is it all right? Is that better? Okay, all right. That was okay. my moment, Margaret.
1: <laughs>
2: Look, and uh, during that time, I gave away all of these secrets. And, <laughs> <laughs> they were the two of the great joys of my working life, and I'm so proud to have published them. So, um, Holly, um, we've just heard Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, massive bestseller, are published in 31 territories... Um, And then there was Back to Nature, obviously, where you starred with Aaron Pedersen. Then they sold TV rights. Yeah, just casual about that. (laughs) And uh, uh, you, I think it was Made Up Stories, a little production house that you might not have heard of that have uh, produced Big Little Lies and The Dry, (laughs) now producing The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart starring Sigourney Weaver (laughs) and Asher Keddie and Leah Purcell and other luminaries, extraordinary. My question is, and I am gradually coming to a question, is how do you, after all of that, all of that kerfuffle and emotional turmoil and investment and um, big emotions, how do you come back to writing? How do you come back to story after that?
1: The beautiful thing about Catherine Milne asking me this question is as if she hasn't spent approximately 90,000 weekend hours on the phone to me while I am scro- like crying hysterically at her, I don't know how to come back from this. Um, it's a beautiful question. and. Uh, just before I answer it, thank you so much for being here. It's so nice to see you, and um, you know, yay, snuggling while the world ends outside. I think that in my experience now, there's there's two parts to a published writing life. One part is what everything else relies on. And it's the part where you sit at home mostly alone. For me, it meant highly questionable personal hygiene, no bra on, no social skills, and, and committing deeply to the interior life of a story that was asking to be told. To commit that to paper required all of me from the outside so, it's very much like an introverted burrow hole to go into. That's one half of what the writing life is. And the other half is the absolute madness of, of what has happened. I mean, you know, my biggest dream for Lost Flowers when it went out to publishers to consider was that I just hoped that they didn't think that it was like muck on the bottom of their <laughs> shoes and a waste of their time. And the very last thing that I genuinely in my wildest dreams ever expected was anything that you've just said. (laughs) And so to come back and to write again after your life kind of gets blown up in a way that I'm always running to keep up with and understand as well is it comes back to what we love about... For me, it comes back to what we love about books and stories. Mm. It comes back to the feeling. It comes back to how it felt when I was a kid. And if anybody asked me anything about myself, right from when I was, like, four, I would say, oh, I'm going to grow up and be an author. Don't you know? And they'd look at me and they're like, "A bless. (laughs) You know, let her have her dreams. (laughs) Because the world is is tough and cruel. (laughs) And... And that's the only way, after Lost Flowers, when I knew that I wanted to write again, and this is all I ever want to do is just keep writing novels that feel really beautiful to be alive, to be able to do, the only place I know how to do that is to know that I have to go into the place as a kid and as an adult that we all have inside of us that's sore and tender and story lives there. And everything else stays outside mm. and, and although stationery shops and you know Apple Mac shops or Microsoft Windows shops are really like glitzy and, and you know mesmerizing, we don't need all of the tools. Mm.
2: Mm.
1: Everything that we need to tell stories are already mm. in us, mm. so it's, mm. it, it's closing down the distraction mm. and going into the tender place
2: yeah. We will come to um, The Seven skins <coughs> of Esther Wilding in a minute, I promise. But um, that period when, you, when, when um, Esther started wandering into your life, mm. and then about a year or so later, I mean, you wrote this book under the most testing of circumstances. <sighs> it wasn't that there was just a lot of uh, things, fantastic, exciting things happening around yeah. Alice it was that you were, in effect, you started writing this when you were stranded, marooned in Australia (laughs) with two suitcases. So, tell us about that. that. Yeah.
1: So, um, my partner Sam is uh, English and very lovely. Uh, (laughs) Sorry babe, I had to get it in. Had to get it in early. And we met Uh, 13 years ago when I went to the UK to do my masters in creative writing and my plan was to be there for two years and I had absolutely no interest in ever speaking to a heterosexual man ever again because I'd gone to England to get away from all of them on the planet Uh, and I met Sam on my fourth day and he's like the loveliest person on feet so uh, my two years ended up turning into ten where we lived between Manchester and Australia We came home together at the end of 2019 to have Christmas with our families and to film Back to Nature. Back to Nature was meant to happen in 2020 over a 10-week period. I don't want to take anybody back to 2020, but we all know (laughs) what happened. And the 10-week period that Back to Nature was meant to take to film was 10 months, and the country shut down in varying stages. And the best laid plans were that we were returning to England in May of 2020. I had trips, long, month-long trips booked to go and stay in Denmark and the Faroe Islands. I have an office in Manchester that I'd been collecting research material for three years for to write this novel. It's all still there waiting for me (laughs) with a note on my desk saying, you can do it (laughs) when you return. And I think until uh, my very beautiful cousin who's living in our house, I wrote to her maybe sort of two years into the pandemic and I said, I think I left a cup of tea (laughs) on my desk. (laughs) It's become its own biosphere by now, but can you please... So end of 2020, at the, I mean, at the end of 2019, just after we'd come home, and all of us were heartbroken by the bushfires, again, we don't want to go back to but like we've lived with a lot the last few years, the biggest glimmer in my horizon was that Collins, Catherine had been listening to me talk about, oh, I think there's this story as to Wilding, and Collins decided to blow me to bits by giving me a book deal, which I signed, I wasn't so excited about signing the book deal. Twelve months later, when I still hadn't started writing the book hmm. and was legally obligated to produce something, when the world had like ended in front of me. And I
2: am a terrifying. And you are terrifying a terrifying publisher.
1: taskmaster. Yes. So at the end of twenty twenty, I um. I was quite. I have anxiety. I have um. You know, post-traumatic stress in my background. It's a, it is a carnival up there to, to manage. And so, when confronted with, I mean, self-doubt and fear needs very little creatively, right? Like, so my brain has this arsenal of, okay, so cute. You're going to try and write your second novel, but your office is like 17,000 kilometres away with all of your research books. You've cancelled trips to Copenhagen and the Faroes sorry, but your imagination's not that good. Like, good luck to you. And so I had to do a lot of mind work and get creative, and I am really, really lucky that I have an excellent, beautiful partner and excellent, beautiful parents who have just retired, and people say to them, how's retirement? And mum's like, the children have moved home. Thank you (laughs) for asking. The children being (laughs) middle-aged. I bought a caravan because I needed a dedicated space where my mum, God bless her, doesn't pack my things into a pile and like push them to <laughs> one end of the kitchen table and say, can you, this, mm-hmm. there's your pile. I needed to sprawl. Mm-hmm. So I bought a caravan and investing in that caravan was an incredible act that started to help me manage the self-doubt and the fear, saying, good luck, you can't do this. And I'm like, shut up, I'm going to buy a vintage caravan, watch me. So I set that up in Mum and Gaz's paddock, and the harder the world got, the more I packed that little caravan Mm -hmm. full of plants Mm -hmm. and shells and every talisman that I could think of from Esther's story. And... I distinctly remember where I was in the paddock when I rang you, mm. and I said I can't write a landscape I haven't been to, Catherine. I'm, I might have to think of another novel. And the arsenal this woman has in her under her wing. I then got these very like subtle. I would just I wouldn't get a text message. I'd just get links to podcasts. Amy Tan talks about writing landscapes she's never been to. <laughs> um, <laughs> like. These, like, <laughs> Goliath <laughs> authors in the world, no text message, it's just, like, drop, run. And I would open my phone, and I'm like, uh, oh, subtle, put my headphones in. And so, you know, with that sort of support and belief in you, there just came a point where I, we were all living such a crazy, I mean, we're still living with it, obviously, but that was such a heightened, crazy time. And I just thought, oh, Why not? Mm. Everything is upside down. Why not?
2: One of the things that um, you uh, you uh, use a lot in uh, as a ha- sort of as a, a motto or a hashtag or a um, you know a, a banner by yeah. which you live is joy is an act of resistance, which is particularly pertinent for the writing process of this novel because it was born out of you know, living with your parents, not being able to go home, you know, writing in a caravan, interrupted by work constantly, and yet out of it this beautiful book was born. Can you hold it up? Hold up that gorgeous, (laughs) glittering book. It is so beautiful. I remember when um, Holly, um, uh, I read the, the, the final manuscript sitting at my um, kitchen table and um, and weeping, weeping into my tea and um, texting Holly and saying I'm sorry I've got to put money in the swear jar but you did it, <laughs> you did it, um, it was very exciting. Now there are people here who may not have, know what Esther Wilding no. is about because you're very practiced at the pitch, do you want to tell them sure. the story of this novel? Everybody we'll gets the, we're
1: stuck in an elevator together mm with our masks on Um, I wanted to write a novel about joy and I don't know how to write about joy if I don't also write about grief because how do we know one without the other and they go together my favourite Mary Oliver poem out of the hundreds that she gifted us was The House That Joy Built and it's three lines and it's Joy and grief, joy and grief. What a time they have, these two, housed as they are in the same body. And that was, that was in my mind when I started to tell this story, which is about Esther Wilding, who is on her way home to where she grew up on the east coast of Lutruwita, Tasmania, a year after her sister was last seen walking towards the sea and disappeared. Esther flees home and goes to the west coast of the island to try and cope. And her parents invite her home for a memorial to finally start to grieve her sister's disappearance, her death. Esther begrudgingly comes home, and her parents present her after the memorial with a with the, her sister Aura, her older sister, with Aura's journal. In the journal are diary entries that Aura wrote when she was 14, 15 and it's everything that we probably remember from, I mean maybe this is revealing, well the whole novel is me revealing myself, (laughs) what am I saying? But like I love River Phoenix and you know making up code names for boys that we loved at school because God help us if we like could say how we felt, boys were ruthless at school. What's also in the journal? There's a big gap between when Aura stopped writing as a teenager and then comes a series of seven images of feminine mythology accompanied by seven verses that Esther's mother, who is a tattooist, says to Esther, Aura had these secretly tattooed on her body. And we are asking you to go to Denmark where Aura was last before she came home to Tasmania. And please try and find out what happened to her because we have nothing. We have no answers. And so it's really Esther facing ambiguous loss, which we all live with and I find so fascinating. An ambiguous loss is the loss that has no closure. There is no coming home for us. There's only our acceptance. So there are no answers in, in a sense that Esther knows that she can find. It's just more an understanding to try and make peace with accepting a loss that feels merciless. Mm. So she very reluctantly travels from Lutruwita, Tasmania to Copenhagen and then finds herself getting on a plane to the Faroes, the Faroe Islands. And really it's about, to me, it's Esther's story of slowly making all of these tiny micro choices to say yes to life instead of constantly blowing up her life and letting in love and joy, Mm. instead of being swamped only by grief and continuing to make the same choices that lead her to the same outcomes. (coughs) It's not autobiographical at all.
2: (laughs) And you wrote, and you did, you wrote this novel based uh, uh, on one trip to Tasmania one trip to Copenhagen, yes, and you hadn't, you hadn't got to the pharaohs, No, I still so how been. how did you do it in the end?
1: How? God bless the internet. How did the Bronte sisters do it <laughs> without the internet? And and additionally, God bless these people that go on holidays and film driving onto a ferry and then upload that video onto youtube <laughs> like it is the most fascinating thing that anybody has seen i am the person that is there like pause okay what's that detail from the ferry railing and i'm like god bless you girl star 1989 <laughs> like these you know just my my love and gratitude for these people also like plain enthusiasts who take the flight from copenhagen to the faroes and film it, and I'm like, now I am sitting in my seat. Now the air hostess is coming, and I'm like, this is gold! (laughs) And to be able to hear the accents and, like, you know, we speak in Faroese first and then in Mm. Danish and then in just all of those Mm. little details. Mm. But the biggest thing that I think gave me courage was that of all the stuff that I trawled on the internet, I knew enough to know that I couldn't do any of this without local knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so just like when we were kids and our parents encouraged us to like have pen pals, I had that real vulnerability and fear as like a 42-year-old woman sitting down to write like a cold email to someone I'd found through a series of short films made about outliers of stereotypes in the Faroe Islands. It's a very traditional culture, it's very gendered. Men farm the sheep, women help on the farm, women have the babies, that's stereotypical and general. But Mm -hmm. there are outliers in that Mm -hmm. community that are as colourful and diverse as anywhere on earth Mm -hmm. and this beautiful short film group from South Africa made this series of short films about all the artists and the freaks and the beautiful people, and I say freaks, considering myself one of them, Mm -hmm. like that are in The Faroes. Mm -hmm. Through one of these short films, I found a Faroese writer and artist named Raquel. I sat down and got all like nervous and shy and wrote her this email trying to ride that line of like not too many exclamation marks so that I sound Mm -hmm. manic. (laughs) But, like, also warm and please help me, I'm not crazy. Like, and she was so generous Mm. and she wrote back and said, I would love to help you however I can. Mm. So I did all the work and wrote the story and then I sent it to her to read the Faroese parts in particular. Mm. And, you know, God bless what's lost in translation when somebody speaks, like, five languages and English is the fifth because there's no fluff. There's no like, Holly, I can see that you've tried really hard here, mm-hmm. but there might be an inaccuracy. It's just like, wrong, <laughs> no, <laughs> red. But it was amazing yeah. because all of the information that I had was from guidebooks, from yeah. YouTube, then you get a local to read it. Rubbish. <laughs> okay, I won't take it personally. <laughs> Keep going. But it... Cheryl Strayed talks about lives that we don't live being ghost ships that we watch sail past us out on the sea and we salute them as they go. Whatever novel I was going to write in that office full of research with those two trips to Denmark and Copenhagen, Mm. I salute it as it goes by because this is what I wrote and I love it Mm. and I... No one is going to sit up here and say that they're grateful for COVID Mm. happening, but I am grateful that this story chose me and stuck with me.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it's very clear from anyone who's read it that it is extraordinary what you've done because the landscape just comes so vividly alive. There is such a strong sense of place. So, you know, thank God for Raquel. Thank God. Um, I want to talk now about... um, the myths, legends, and folklore, and fairy tale, particularly that are so intricately woven into the fabric of the novel—from the plot to the the way it's structured—the seven skins, obviously mm. echoing mm. Um, all of those fairy tales about people who shed skins and selkies—and mm. um, but, do you want to tell us about what led you to, or the first? The fairy tale, the Ooh. Helen and Iblom fairy tale, mm. um, if, if, if indeed we can even call it a fairy tale, yeah. the story that first um, tripped you into that, that, um, that realm yeah. of storytelling that is so woven into this novel?
1: When I was in my 20s, I had the extreme uh, honour and joy of, I was a ranger at Uluru Katajuda National Park and I lived in an Aboriginal community and worked there and I had the incredible uh, honour of having everything I knew about being Australian blown to pieces because before I had that job, um, I had a really good public education schooling of the 80s that was an exclusively white education. And so what I learned living at Uluru was about stories being law, L-A-W, and law, L-O-R-E, and that stories exist in land. And you cannot take a story that comes from a land and transplant it onto another place. And the profundity of learning that from my Anangu friends and colleagues that I had in that job on Pitinjara land was that when I want to know about a place, I go to the stories of that place that come out of there because they can't be taken and put anywhere else. So, I say that to give context to when I had sent nearly the final draft to you of Lost Flowers, I'd been in Lost Flowers so intensely that my brain was like, oh my God, I can read for pleasure. And I went into my office in Manchester, and I descend from Celtic and Scandinavian people. So, I've always been really drawn to Irish fairy tales and Danish folklore. And years ago, and I hadn't opened it up until that point, I would bought a collection of Danish, I beg your pardon, Swedish they were called, Mm. Swedish fairy tales, by a woman I'd never heard of, Helena Nyblom, and I tucked the book away on my bookshelf and, you know, TBR pile. Hadn't looked at it. And I was towards the end of finishing Lost Flowers and I was thinking about being in the UK and my Scandinavian and Celtic ancestors and, you know, just when you've got a thousand thoughts sort of going through your mind. And I looked up at my bookshelf and I pulled this this book of Swedish fairy tales off thinking about Helena Nyblom, who wrote it, thinking about what it might say about the lands that the stories came from. And I opened the book and the first page that I opened it on was on a set of tales, a fairy tale called All the Wild Waves. And like, it's a book of fairy tales. I'd flicked through, it's like, you know, boy comes to girl's rescue in the forest with a magical golden orb and they lived happily ever after. So it was full of the tropes we know And Buried in the middle of this collection is this story called All the Wild Waves. So I sit down on my floor and I'm like, oh, a nice little comfy fairy tale, yay. And I start reading and it tells the story of a young woman named Violanta whose purpose and meaning and obsession in life is to get to the sea. She lives in the mountains. All this woman woman wants is to get to the sea. So she leaves her mother and her brother and she follows this dream and desire to get to the sea. Along the way, she is offered marriage, a job at the flour mill. She comes along this enchanted garden and mansion that belongs to an independent woman. This is an early 1900s fairy tale, an independent woman who lives alone, but she's maimed. She can't walk because we can't be both, obviously. We can't walk and be independent. <laughs> And so she's offered opportunities to take up with all of these things, and she she focuses solely on my dream is to get to the sea. So I'm reading this story, and I'm like, yes, we're going to get to the sea. I can't wait because I think I'm reading the fairy tale we all know. And she gets to the sea, and I'm going to give you the spoiler. Is that okay? Like I'm going <laughs> to I have to for the story. She gets to the sea, the sea rises up and screams at her, we are the wild waves, do you know us now? And they crash over her black and malevolent and drown her and that is the end of the story, is her body (laughs) lifeless in the sea. And I was on my office floor (laughs) and I was like, I am betrayed. (laughs) But then after that feeling was like, who is the woman that buried this story? in amongst all of the stories we all know when the world was being published solely by men and she's buried what was a morality tale about women being punished for having dreams and desires and wildness and she's wedged in and then you turn the page and the next one is like Jolly Cal, the imp in the forest. And I read that story, mm. that was in 2017, mm. and I think I rang you. Yes, we had a big conversation. We had a big conversation, and mm. I said, I don't know what's happened, but it's something. And that started to merge with my, my memories and ideas of my Scandinavian ancestors and the, you know, the greatest source of folklore in our lives might come in varying forms. For me, the source was Granny's Kitchen Table, the sacred, you know, that was the fire, that was the hearth, all manner of business took place over the kitchen table. And so I drew on stories that I knew of my Scandinavian Danish ancestors Mm. and I took this fairy tale from Helena and I printed out a photo of her and stuck it above my desk. Mm. And I thought, when I first found that fairy tale, I thought, God, I wish it was Danish because my ancestors were Danish and I was thinking, oh, it would be such a nice connection So, I got into Helena and I did a little research into our background. Helena was born in Copenhagen, raised in Copenhagen. Hans Christian Andersen were friends. Mm. He was friends with her parents and used to come for tea. But she married a Swede. Mm. So, the world remembers remembers her as Swedish. So, I was like, she was (laughs) Danish. (laughs) But that was... That was the beginning, and that story had such a profound effect on me because it's the reminder that since the beginning of time, like the women in Tasmania that make the shell necklaces in this story, women have found a way to tell stories unbroken. And whether you were in Sweden or Denmark, burying the call, the roar from your soul in amongst fairy tale tropes that men would publish or your women surviving the brutality of colonisation and refuse to stop making your culture.
2: Making your beauty.
1: Making your beauty, Mm. your your art, art, your Mm. everything. We've been doing it since before clocks Mm. existed. Mm. That was a huge driving force. If women could do that, I could sit in a caravan (laughs) during a pandemic and write this. That was the... Um,
2: I, I want to keep talking about selkies and, and myths and legends, but I think the time is uh, right for you now to ask questions. So before I launch into my next question, does anyone have a question for Holly, or shall I just give you some notice? Oh, we have a question. Uh, I, so
1: I've only read up to chapter four. <laughs> <laughs> That's since this morning. So I'm going well. Oh, amazing! <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about the artwork and the process of getting the artwork done because Mm. I feel it's such a huge part of the stories that you tell and the whole education process and it's just beautiful. Like, it just adds this whole... It takes it to a whole different level. Like, it's a whole world that you can just shut yourself in and get lost in.
2: For context, Holly, do you want to say what some of the artworks are? Yeah, because you mean the
1: the artworks in the book, not the cover. Oh, Oh, both. Both. Mm. So, uh, when... Before Catherine had read the novel, when I write... I, I really come to the Microsoft Word document with no holds barred, so I might, I'm the writer that will spend six hours in Canva figuring out how to add cello tape to the corners of images myself so that I can insert it into the Microsoft Word document because I need every bit of belief that I can get in the story and I need to see it as it will be as a book. So I can remember saying to Catherine, Okay, so I've written the novel and like I just want you to know that there's lots of art in it and I've made like clippings and put it in the Microsoft Word document and Catherine was like, yes, now let me just read it and we'll just, we'll see, we'll see if we need the clip art. We'll see if we need your clip art, Holly.
2: Resistance is futile. (laughs) You,
1: You can understand
2: now, can't you? Yeah.
1: And then she read it and she rang me and she was like, we need the art. So with the art inside, for everybody who doesn't know, there are seven images of feminine mythology that exist in the world, included in the novel. The first one is a sculpture at Binalong Bay, uh, the Bay of Fires, Larapuna, in Truita, Tasmania. The second one is an illustration from a Helena Nyblom fairy tale. And I think, in fact, there are three illustrations from three Helena fairy tales in there. And uh, there are other sculptures that are in Copenhagen and the Faroe Islands, all of stories about women who have been stolen from or denied their desire and water. And that was what fascinated me as well, how many stories tell the same tale of women following their desire And like in these fairy tales, losing their lives in the sea because of it. Being punished. Being punished Mm. for it. Mm. So, um, now I have the great delight of saying that when I wanted to put the artwork into the novel and I had no idea what that involved, uh, Catherine introduced me to my extraordinary editor, Scott (laughs) Forbes, who kept... (laughs) who kept me upright on many days through this process. And part of keeping me upright was being calm and steady when I'm like, I don't know where to get permission from to use these. And Scott would come back and be like, yes, I've spoken to the National Gallery and the Faroes. I tracked it down. I tracked it down. I've found who has permission. I've been in touch. It's all fine. (laughs) So, this miracle of a man and excellent human, I mean, as you can probably tell from this energy, it was a journey for Scott going through <laughs> this book with me and being, getting all seven of those images aligned and ready to go, that was his absolute magic and handiwork and that's how we pulled them all together to use in the, in the novel. Yeah, does that answer your, like, was that what you were after? Yeah, okay, Great. Yes. <laughs> so I was sitting in the cafe this morning and I'm like, I can source it all you can live just like so it yes. <laughs> needs to be candle ranges of professionals. <laughs> <Barbara Collins, take, laughs> we're on it. Excellent <laughs> idea. Yes. I think we've got yeah,
2: one here. It's been really lovely listening to oh, your creative you. journey and and uh thank you, Holly. Thank I was you. just so interested in hearing you speak, though um how formulated your idea for a novel is at the beginning. Like, you've talked about your journey, but yeah. do, you, do you do a detailed outline or is it an involving process as you find stories, images?
1: Yeah, that's... Such a good it's question. It's such a good question, isn't it? And it's, it's the kind of thing that, before I was published, and that's like one of the levels that's so weird about being up here, is that it just feels like yesterday that I was sitting in the chair with my notebook going,
2: just tell me
1: how to do it. Did you Google how Did to you? write a novel? To, I mean, of, of course I've Googled how to write a novel. Like, a desperate times. A woman will stop at nothing. I, As I mentioned before, my mind, is, my mind is a beautiful place and if I don't do some work on it, it's also a place that will trip over itself because of... Post-traum- I've had post-traumatic stress and that's something that I need to manage forever. It's an ongoing thing and the reason why I mention that is because it doesn't take very much to set off a river of anxiety because I feel like I'm panicked at the page and so then suddenly I've got all the thundering emotion going through my body like I'm under threat and I'm frightened because I don't know what I'm doing. So what I've learned, because when I wrote Lost Flowers, I wasn't aware of that connection. I didn't know then that writing was tripping off all sorts of parts of me that I was needing to access to write that didn't feel safe to do so because I had avoided them at all costs, so I didn't have to try. Here is what I know about how to navigate the minefield. With Esther Wilding, what I knew before I went and sat down and started writing, was I knew, that I knew it was set between Tasmania and the Faroes because I wanted the, I wanted the islands to mirror each other They both have seals and women with relationships with seals. And then I knew that there would be, I knew that in a story Esther couldn't go straight from Tasmania to the Pharaohs. So there was a leapfrog moment I knew that would happen in Copenhagen. So that's where I knew the story needed to go. I knew that I needed something for her to be following because I knew that I wanted her journey to be grief to joy not one without the other, but joy still with grief, but joy, and so there needed to be something that would cause her to persist. And what better than the love of a sister that you than you've lost? And the sister, Aura, is a mirror of everything for Esther. An aura is ambiguous loss that Esther will never really be able to get over, but she will learn how to stand on her own two feet. This is what I knew. I didn't know that the novel would open with a... I didn't know that the novel... I was like,
0: (laughs) spoiler!
1: (laughs) I didn't know how the novel would open in chapter one until right before I sat down to start writing it but what i realized i had to figure out was that the more i could protect myself from the fear of that blank page and the pot of boiling anxiety that it would cause me to sit in if i knew roughly what my steps were it was like following gingerbread crumbs through the forest so i'd sit down at my desk and anxiety would flare up and you know i would have old sort of trauma experiences in my body like i might start to shake or something and then I would think, no, no, I know where I'm writing to. I've got my gingerbread crumb and I would keep going. And that saved me from myself up here. So, I don't have it all plotted out by any means, mm-hmm. but it's like I have a really rough map. And then along the way you're like, oh, I didn't know there was a cheese shop here. I might <laughs> stop here and that's a nice little detail and that sort of thing.
2: And just from the perspective of a publisher, I think that it was quite clear, because I read various drafts at yeah. various stages, that she knew where she was going, where she wanted to end it up, where she wanted the story to end up. She, she was working out aspects of the plot as she went along. But what was like, um, and it really was like, the the grit in the seashell and the pearl layer, because this book is so layered and rich and all of those myths and legends just twining in and out and um, just the sense in which it all started just like coming together. That was layer after layer after layer of writing and thought and... Mm. um,
1: Yes, and and the thing, and you guys are probably very much smarter than I was when I was in the crowd ever watching an author because as an aspiring writer, I would go away and read a finished published book and I would read it just slowly despairing because I'm like, my first drafts are not like this. One more question. I stopped counting how many drafts Alice Hart went through at 17. I have no idea. Scott and I... Scott doesn't want to remember how many drafts we went through on Esther Wilding, so it's the other thing to remember that a first draft is perfect because it needs to exist. It's the foundation of the house, and as long as it's on paper, it can't fail. Everything else is rewriting, and there's nobody that has a gun at your head saying what comes out the first time has to be perfect, even though it can feel that way sometimes. It's like remembering how to finger paint, you know? What does green and purple do? Oh, it makes poo brown, okay, I will go over here to pink. It's it's that sort of allowing ourselves to be imperfect storytellers and you can make it shine in the countless rounds of edits (laughs) later.
2: I think we have just one more quick question.
1: It is a quick question, thank you. Um, just, you say you used to have a map, a but map. where does the map come from? Where does your, do you get the story delivered into you, like in Big Magic, or do you mm, do you question. sort of get pieces that that come together? That's the part that I find fascinating. That yeah. you know, and you know that you're going to go on this journey. Yeah. So you that's lied, it.
2: that's not a quick
1: question. <laughs> it's not going to be a quick answer. Know, everyone's like, Jesus, Holly's going to be here for an hour. Um, it is both. I think it's both of those things. I am constantly awed. I don't know how the people in this book aren't real. Mm-hmm. I say to Catherine all the time, but, as if she can answer me, but why isn't Flossie real? <laughs> I want to go and smoke a joint with Flossie in the Faroe Islands. Mm-hmm. Flossie does other things than smoke joints, (laughs) and the reason why I think that that causes me physical pain is because where, where does this developed person come from who doesn't exist but occupies all my waking thinking time and so therefore does? And the way that I pull a story together, and this goes back to the first question Catherine asked me about how do you follow up the madness of what happened with Lost Flowers? And it's, you know, beautiful Shelley is here today who had me on her writing blog and said to me, what what advice would you give to starting out writers? And the only thing I know that feels like it would be valuable to share with anybody is follow what you love, write what you love. Because if you love it, that's how it gets a heartbeat on the page. And if you love it, you're the captain of the story. You're the captain of the ship. You're writing what comes from that sore, beautiful, tender place that nobody else is an expert on, because it's what you love. So with Esther, I walked around like a magpie, let loose, and I'm like, oh, shiny thing, I love that. Tattoos, I'm putting tattoos in. Fairy tales, fairy tales are going in. Women's friendship, that's going in. Scandinavia, Tasmania, I just kept piling on. You know, the inner critic is like, is that a bit much? And I'm like, shut up. No, so Iris Apfel, right? More is more and less is a bore. <laughs> so, it's a, for me, it's a combination of deeply held reverence for the fact, like I've said this a few times before, and as far as we know, and, you know, whales and dolphins know much more than humans do, but as far as we know, we are the only species on the planet that imagine. We have imagination. We make stuff up because it's a beautiful thing to do. It's fun. So my reverence for that and being lucky enough, I came so close to this not being my life. Hmm. And I will not waste it.
2: (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. (gasps)
1: Thank you, Holly. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
2: Um, Holly will be signing books. There is a beautiful person from the constant reader at the back. Buy a book. Get it signed. Speak to Holly. Buy a book. Yes, buy two. (laughs) Buy two books. Get your Christmas present. (laughs) But thank you so much for coming, especially in this horrible weather, to talk about stories and women and joy and resistance. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, guys.
0: (laughs) Bless you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au library. Thank you for listening.